Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. I want to continue our study in the book of Hebrews this morning by jumping into the scripture right away. I hope you've enjoyed reading this week. Your two chapters, real tough, right? Two chapters in one week. How many did it? How many forgot? How many just didn't think it was worth your time? (laughs) Nobody votes on those things, do they? I'm glad you got into Hebrews. And if you didn't, you're not too late. It's not hard to read a couple chapters a week. And, uh, but I'm going to get right into this. And if you read it, this is going to mean a lot more to you. If you've meditated on it, if you've studied it a little bit, if you've gone through the book that we were handed out, it's going to be even a, a greater uh, series for you because you're just going to be able to squeeze more out of it. Uh, but anyway, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Let's jump right into it today. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. And I I love the way that this letter opens. And remember that it was written to, to mostly Jewish Christians who were waning in their faith. We talked about that last week because persecution towards them had been increasing over the last decade or so. The writer doesn't begin with uh, any niceties and he doesn't begin with any polite salutations he gets right to the heart of the issue in verse one and in these first two verses the theme of of the letter uh is revealed you even get a sense of the tone that the that the letter just just has that the writer has as he's writing it just the fact that he skips the pleasantries there's an intensity to it the writer seems to be constructing an essay that proves the point that he's trying to make. And it's kind of, it's kind of like that, the book of Hebrews. It's why it's a tougher book to understand because it's more, uh, it's more about proving his point, putting down an essay, a thesis, if you will. And we'll talk about that throughout the, uh, the series. And it's as, if, it's, it's as if he's saying, look, God spoke to us in the past using various ways and they were all good. But now he has spoken to us in a much more superior way. He has spoken to us through Jesus Christ, the word of God himself. Do you understand that Jesus Christ is the word of God himself? Jesus is the personification of the word of God. We celebrate that in a couple months. Christmas is coming, right? How many weeks you got till Christmas? Like nine, eight, something like that, 10? I say eight so that you can get your shopping done before Christmas Day. But we celebrate at Christmas time the Word of God becoming flesh. The Word of God becoming flesh. Jesus is the Word of God. You can't separate the two. That's why the Bible is so important to us as Christians. It is Jesus Himself. Jesus is the Word of God in the flesh. And this is the one through whom everything was created and the the one who sits at the right hand of God and has inherited everything. He owns it all. Jesus is greater than everything and it is through him that we find truth. And then verse three begins to make the case even further. Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And that phrase, the radiance of God's glory and and the exact representation of his being. I mean, church, you can read through this stuff and you can do your duty and get through your two chapters in one week and go, I don't even know what I read. How many have ever done that when you started reading the Bible? This is where you have to meditate a little bit. You have to think about it. You have to read it over and over. When I came across that verse, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. I was like, what does that mean? And you should ask the same questions. It's okay to go, hmm, let me read that again. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. We know Jesus is the son of God. We get that. The radiance. What's radiance? It's shining. It's light. 
It's glory. He's the radiance. He's the shining of God's glory. And as you begin to think about it and pray about it and just seek the Lord about it, he begins to reveal just the meaning here. The Son, the Jesus Christ, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And then you can get into the, the Greek a little bit if you want. Because how many know that this was originally written in Greek? And sometimes the English language just doesn't do it justice. To help you understand what the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being means, think of it as a mere image, the radiance, a reflection of God's glory, glory, his character, his nature, the very essence of his being, which is the embodiment of truth, love, justice, power, and goodness. That's all in the person of Jesus Christ. The original Greek word that is translated into the phrase, the exact representation, is the word hadakter. Turn to your neighbor and say, hadakter. Hadakter. <laughs> it's the Greek word. Hadakter. And what is that? Listen, this is where truth gets really exciting. Hadakter is the instrument. If you think about the instrument used for engraving or carving, really, it's the emblem stamped or etched upon that instrument that allows it to create an exact duplicate. That's what hadakter means, the exact representation. An engraver's instrument, and and more accurately, not the instrument itself, but the engraving upon that instrument that allows you to make an exact representation of. That is Jesus and God. Jesus is the exact representation of God. And we know Jesus is God, right? He is God. We get that. But we don't think about that in terms of maybe who this was being written to sometimes. They were fighting at every turn, this persecution. And and again, they were Jewish Christians for the most part. Jewish Christians that were being challenged by the religious leaders saying, "Are, are, are, are you sure about this Jesus guy? I mean, we've got the prophets. You're talking about Jesus, this one guy, and and, and the writer of Hebrews is encouraging them, look, Jesus is better than the prophets. He's the exact representation of God himself. He's even better. He's greater than. And you may have already been thinking about this, but uh, the Greek word hadakter, throw it back up there if you would, Don. This is where we get our Greek word, our, our, our word, our English word, I'm sorry, character. That's not too hard to figure out, is it? Character. Hadakter in Greek. So right away in this letter, the author of Hebrews, who was inspired by God and the words he wrote, uh, they were words that God literally breathed into him to write down on paper, clearly says, hey, believers, In the past, God spoke to our spiritual fathers and mothers using prophets in various ways to speak to us. But now, it's absolutely clear that he has given us a far superior messenger. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the exact image, the exact representation with the exact character and the exact nature of God himself is now our messenger. And he's greater than anything we've seen before. So why is this important? I've already alluded to this, but the book of Hebrews is a letter to Jewish Christians who were discouraged and persecution was the primary reason. I think you remember last week, Nero was was rounding up Christians and doing horrible things to them. I mean, if your belief is is a sentence to death, that's persecution. (laughs) Nero was using Christians, was known to use Christians as tiki torches for his garden parties. He would light them on fire to light his garden parties. I talked about that last week. I mean, this was one sick dude, and these Christians, these Jewish Christians, were scared. How many have ever watched the news and got a little scared? Maybe not as scared as being used as a tiki torch, but I'm telling you today, there are more people being killed in the name of Christianity They're being martyred more today than ever before. 
We live in a great country. I might throw in a little uh, commercial to go vote and make sure your voice is heard as a Christian. I've already voted. Get her done. That stuff's important, but ultimately, that's not the answer. These were mostly second-generation Christians. They had not tangibly experienced being with the physical person of Jesus. The people that they followed had, and we know this by when the book was written or about when it was written. And some of their faith was probably based off of hearing the stories of those that experienced him in the physical sense. Mom and dad, they, 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 this happened to them. And, and I was thinking about this. Believers during this time were some of the first people who had a less tangible experience with God. Whether you're talking about those who lived prior to Jesus being sent from, uh, Jesus being sent from heaven, or those who were alive during his ministry, they all had a tan more tangible connection with God. The spiritual mentors or leaders that these Hebrews were following had seen with their own eyes Jesus work miracles. They saw him. They heard him speak with their own ears. Those who lived before Jesus' time had seen God, God the Father's miraculous hand many, many times. Can you imagine being one of the Israelites and seeing the, the, the Red Sea part, seeing manna from heaven, seeing miracle after miracle after miracle, they saw the hand of God at work. They even heard his audible voice at times. But these believers, these Jewish believers, these Hebrew believers, Messianic Jews, were some of the first that had had to believe without seeing while remaining strong without the foundation of that tangibility of faith to stand on that others before them were blessed with and were able to stand on. And there's probably some exceptions to that. I mean, I'm sure we, we could talk about the, those that uh, were, were faithful to, to God in the Old Testament during the 400 years of silence. And, and what's the 400 years of silence? It's the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and God just didn't speak to his people. It's 400 years of silence. But in the Old Testament, God dealt with his people in accordance with the Old Covenant. He used prophets, those who were called to be the mouthpieces of God, to speak to the people. God instituted a sacrificial system involving the first fruits of the crops and the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And we know about these things. Remember in the Old Testament that Jesus had not come yet, right? His death on the cross hadn't happened yet. When one of God's people sinned back then, they had to sacrifice or offer up an animal. They literally shed its blood, and it had to be in a very specific way. And this was done within the tabernacle, and it was performed by the Levitical priesthood. I'm getting into a lot of things here, and we're going to get more into that later as the series goes. But, but when you read the Old Testament, you realize how bloody of a mess that would have been. I mean, it was a mess. Killing animals constantly, killing this many bulls. How many have read that and going, wow, that would have had to be... I've shared this before, but I had an uncle who worked in a, in a meat packing plant, and once a year, they would have a kosher kill, and the Jewish rabbis would come in, and they would kosher kill the animals, and they would be up to their knees in blood. It was a bloody mess. Gross. According to Smith's Bible Dictionary, the Hebrew word for Old Testament, covenant, the word covenant in the Old Testament is bereath, which means primarily a cutting. I want you to think about this a minute. This references the custom of cutting or dividing animals in two and passing between the parts to ratify the agreement. Covenant is a word that is not as understood as it should be within the church. Covenant. I know in Ultimate Journey, if you really want to get a good understanding of, of the word covenant, you take Ultimate Journey. You will understand covenant, probably phase two especially. 
I say this in marriage ceremonies all the time. A contract is an agreement between two parties. And it, doesn't, and, and it's, it depends on if the, the parties, each party's ability to live up to the conditions of that contract. If a party doesn't live up to the conditions, the contract is broken. A covenant is different. It's not a mere contract. It's, more, it's deeper. It's more than just a contract. A covenant is an agreement between two people that's not based on their ability to meet the conditions. Let me give you a for instance. You entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Anybody out there saved? Anybody out there know Jesus Christ as their personal savior? Okay, you entered into an agreement with him. You entered into a relationship with him. How many have blown it since you entered into that relationship with him? I'll lift up both hands and both feet. He loves you anyway, regardless. He forgives you. How many times? As many times as you repent, which is a whole lot, I hope. Bereath, that word for covenant in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for covenant, it means a cutting. In the New Testament, the corresponding Greek word for covenant is diathese, which is frequently translated testament. This is where we get the Bible division titles of Old and New Testament. We could really title them Old and New Covenant, because that's really how they're titled. You've heard the phrase, cutting a deal? Hey man, I want to cut a deal with you. How many have ever heard somebody say that? Okay, you've heard that before. It comes from the word covenant to cut. And in God's covenant with Abraham, God made a promise to him that had conditions. God would keep his end of the bargain no matter what, and Abraham would have to be completely obedient. God gave Abraham a sign of that covenant, circumcision. Here again, the sign for being under this covenant involved a cutting, a cutting away of the excess. Talk about physical circumcision of God's people in the Old Testament, but think about in the New Testament, a circumcision of our heart, and we cut away the excess. The next time someone says to you, hey, let's cut a deal, you can say to them, oh, you know about biblical covenant language, let's talk about that. It's a great lead-in. They don't even know that they're talking about covenants, but they are, that's where that comes from. And church, I know this gets a little technical and a, and a bit hard to follow, and I'm not trying to go too deep or preach over your head in any way at all, but the author of this letter is saying to the readers, Jesus is greater than the prophets and the ways of the old covenant. He is a perfect reflection of God. He, in fact, is God. Don't grow weary in your obedience and in your submission to him. He represents a new covenant, one that is greater than anything we've had in the past. Jesus died once and for all. No longer is there a need for sacrificial systems and the shedding of animal blood because all that God set up in the old covenant for his people to experience atonement and forgiveness of their sins, he has now completely fulfilled through one person, the person of Jesus Christ. He died on a cross for your sins. He shed his blood. It is done. We don't have to walk around in blood no more. We don't have to kill our animals, amen, for the forgiveness of sins. He has completely fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. The old covenant hasn't been abolished. It's just been completely fulfilled. Christ lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death, died in our place, a death that we deserved. And his glorious and miraculous resurrection defeated death forever. We just sang about it. These are theological things that we don't, we don't force our brains to think about too much. And how many know we think about dumb stuff? I mean, we sit around and we think about the dumbest things sometimes. We talk about dumb things. I mean, who gives a flying hoot about a score between two teams, really? I mean, when, when you can think about and dwell upon and meditate on the fact that Jesus gave all for you. Why, why do we think about such crazy things? 
Did you hear about what happened on last night's episode of? I mean, I get that that stuff can be fun and entertaining, and I'm not saying, I'm not preaching against it, but when we, that's all we do. I, you know, I wish we could take all of our minutes, all of our seconds in a day, and just like put them out on paper, graph them out. How many minutes you spend thinking about garbage versus how many minutes you meditated on the life-giving word of God. It would be embarrassing for all of us. And yet, we don't change. We feed our flesh. We do the things that we enjoy and that tickle us a little bit in our ears and make us happy. We don't dive in like we should to the things that really matter. What's the author of Hebrews alluding to? He's talking about covenants here when he talks about better than the prophets. Better than the old covenant. And we'll get more into that as we progress in the series. Then you may remember from your reading this last week that the writer not only says that Jesus is greater than the prophets of the Old Covenant, but he is greater than even the angels. And there's a reason he said this. Throughout the Old Testament, angels had a prominent place as helpers and messengers. God used them to carry out his will and purposes. Their tangible activity seems to be more prevalent in the Old Testament. Doesn't mean angels aren't doing things now. I believe that they are. But they saw them, and it seemed like all the time in the Old Testament. God's people strongly believed in angels back then. They didn't doubt their existence whatsoever. Their activity and involvement in various situations had always been considered as evidence that God's hand was at work, and rightly so. But with these legitimate beliefs about angels and the stories involving their activity being handed down for centuries upon centuries, the thought that Jesus was greater than even the angels probably shocked them a little bit. He says in verse 5, the writer, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? In verse 13, he says, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He's writing an essay. He's, he's making a point. He's trying to prove something to these Hebrew believers who were waning in their faith because the persecution was coming. He was saying, man, woman, don't forget that Jesus is greater than all the stuff in the past. He's even greater than the angels. He's greater than the old covenant. And as the writer is making this case that Jesus is greater than the prophets, the old covenant, and that they represented, and even greater than the angels, he's really saying something, and this is, this is really the point of today's message. It took me a while to get there, right? If you take all of this last week's reading and you put it into just one thing, I think he's really saying this. Jesus is greater than religion. Relationship with Jesus is greater than religion. And let me give you a Wikipedia definition of religion. Everybody goes to Wikipedia, right? Wikipedia says this, a social cultural system of designated behaviors and practices, morals, worldviews, texts, sanctified places, prophecies, ethics, or organizations that relates humanity to supernatural, transcendental, or spiritual elements. However, there is no scholarly consensus over what precisely constitutes a religion. And as you probably know, Wikipedia is a free encyclopedia, right? Written collaboratively by the people who use it. Since 2001, it has grown rapidly to become the world's largest reference website. Think about that. Anybody can go on Wikipedia and put what their definition is. 
And it's the largest reference website with 6.2 million articles in English attracting billions of views every month. Anybody can edit it. It's the epitome of truth being relative to the individual. But truth is not relative to each individual. Truth is truth. It exists beyond us. I say it all the time. It's here, and we have to come underneath of it and submit to it. End of story. You don't get your truth, and I love it when people say, well, I'm so excited for you and your truth. (laughs) It's not my truth. Truth is truth. It exists apart from me. I mean, to say that you have a truth and I have a truth and everybody's is the same, it's hogwash. And if you hear that in the media, if you hear that from your, from your uh, Hollywood stars, if you hear that from the pulpits of America, turn it off, because it's wrong. Truth is truth. It doesn't depend what I, truth is not defined by what I think it's supposed to be or what you think it's supposed to be. It's just true. It's absolute. You following me? as a way of sneaking in there. Those ideas. And young people, you'll get it at school. Let's respect everybody's truths and let's hold them up as equal. I can respect somebody who doesn't believe the way I do. I, I can. But it doesn't mean I have to believe that their truth is really true. Somewhere along the line, we started saying, well, their truth is as good as your truth. And if you don't believe that, then, then you're a bigot. I mean, I'm sorry, I gotta go here, and I, I, I know I've talked about this before, but you can say that this is a lazy boy recliner all you want, it's not a lazy boy recliner. It doesn't feel like a lazy boy recliner. I can't put my feet up. It doesn't have one of those levers down here, you know, that you can kick back and relax. I sit in this thing, my back starts hurting after a little bit, right? It is not a lazy boy recliner. It is a stool, and it's a cheap Walmart one at that. Right? Ten bucks. We had to buy a lot of them, so we wanted to save God's money for other things. Well, my truth is that it's a lazy boy. I don't care. That's not true. Understand, guys. You have to understand what truth is. Truth is absolute. It's absolute. It's something that you seek to find. It's not something that you decide what it is. Now I'm all off track. The articles in Wikipedia are presented as facts. As are, are, they're very suspect of just being some random, pers- random person's opinion. And, and I'll say this, there's things in Wikipedia that are true. There's a lot of Christians that get on and there's a lot of people that go on and try to undo what's being done. And that's great. But let's get back to this definition of religion that it has. And I wanna say this, I think that this particular definition is pretty accurate. Shake any religion down to its bare bones and you will basically have a social cultural system of designated behaviors and practices, morals, worldviews, texts, sanctified places, prophecies, ethics, or organizations that attempt to relate humanity to the spiritual. Even Christianity, in the religious sense, is this very thing. But there is a truth within Christianity that will move you past a religion. Within the new covenant of Jesus Christ and the Christian faith, there is an opportunity to have a relationship with God. And it's not just a religion, it's a relationship. Religion attempts to reach God through systems. Christianity is more than a religion because it's a relationship with God that is accomplished through the person of Jesus Christ. Through him, we can have fellowship with God. We can pray anytime we want. We can worship him anytime we want. He's there all the time, right? It's it's not like we have to go to church to find him. Although going to church and being a part of of, of other believers and and, and worshiping with them is is fun and that's a joy, right? And it's something we're supposed to do. But but you don't have to go to church to, to find him. He's everywhere. He's in everything. You just have to seek him. That's it. It's that simple. 
It is a real relationship that is personal to the individual. It's interesting that truth, the world tries to take truth and make it relative to the individual, right? God says truth is truth, it's absolute, but your relationship with me can be relative. It's based off of every individual. How do, you, how do you talk to God? I hear people say, I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to pray really good. You know how you pray? You talk to God just like you talk to anybody else. I mean, if that's you, that's how you talk. You might want to clean up some language if you're having those kind of struggles, but you know, you talk to him out of your own personality. And you know what, even if you didn't clean up your language because you're not that far along in your relationship with God, he's big enough to handle that. I mean, there's people that are mad at God, so? He can handle that. Have a relationship with Jesus. Work it out. The Bible says, come, let us reason together. Right? That's what God says. Anybody ever yell at God? I mean, not that I'm going to be right in doing that, but he's big enough to handle it. Christianity in the religious sense is this very thing. It's this social, cultural system. It can be broke down to that. Religion attempts to reach God through systems. Christianity is more than a religion because it's a relationship. I've had people say to me that they are against all forms of organized religion because every war that has ever been fought had to do with religion. And if you think about it, it's true. But Christianity is different. It's more than a social cultural system. It moves past mental ascent. The mental ascent to an organization's practices. It moves past trying to follow morals and it moves past worldviews. It's a relationship that is completely different than, than that. And, and, and you can be a Christian by religious definition and still completely miss this. There are people in churches all over this country this morning that miss it. Let, let, me, let me break this down even further for you. When going to church is an obligation you try to meet rather than a joy that you can't wait to, to, to be a part of, your relationship is turned into religion. When the morals and values we claim to live by are motivated by anything other than the authentic, deep-seated love that we have for Christ, your relationship has fallen into religion. When our, our prayers become a method by which we can look spiritual to others instead of a true concern for the heart and the will of God in any given situation, our religion is turn, our, our relationship is turned to religion. When our praise is for show and not solely out of our desire to give God glory. When we have the institution of the church but no intimacy with Christ, your relationship has become religion. When our giving is motivated by gain instead of our love of obedience to Him. You might remember Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. They brought an offering to God, which was the money that earned from the sale of some land they owned. They claimed that it was full price, that they, had, that, they got, that they were giving the full price that they had received, when in all actuality, they held some back for themselves. Others with the church, others within the church had, had given everything, and they didn't want to be seen as giving any less, but they wanted some of it held back, so they came in with partial, a partial of the sale. They lied about it was the problem, not that they didn't give the full amount. If they were to give the, if they were to came and said, hey, here's 75% of our land sale, it would, it would have been fine. But they lied about it, and they both died right in church. They fell over dead that minute when they lied. In a sense, it was religiosity that killed them because they were looking to be seen rather than giving out of love. Religion always leads to legalism and self-effort, a self-effort to reach God. The problem is that there is no way to reach God. There are no ways to have access to him except through the blood of Jesus Christ and a relationship that begins the the moment you accept his gift on the cross. Ultimately, religion, it tries to change you from the outside in. A relationship with Christ will change you from the inside out. It's totally different. 
And this is why Christianity is so amazingly different than every world religion that you can come across. And there's a whole bunch of people who claim to be Christians who are on that, they have that label, right? That miss that very thing. And so their version has even become dead religion. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The religious leaders during the time of Jesus couldn't stand and during the time of even, even these, these Hebrew believers, they couldn't stand this group of dissenters. Religion nailed Jesus to the cross, for goodness sakes. I mean, the religious leaders did that. They were so caught up in their religious systems that they couldn't see with their spiritual eyes that Jesus was the Son of God and their long-awaited Messiah, and the Jewish community is still waiting for him. Religion always kills, but relationship with Christ will always give life and life to the fullest. The writer of Hebrews is saying that the good news of Jesus and the real relationship that you can have with him was far greater than any of the religiosity, we'll say it that way, of the past. This was a new covenant. It was, a, it was greater than the old covenant. I want to make a statement here. Um, denominations within the Christian faith have a tendency that the older they are, the more religious they get. I don't know if you've seen that or understood that, but the older they are, they seem to get further and further and further away from that vital relationship and more into the religion of what they believe. And I could give you examples, but I don't want to do that. But even in our group, our fellowship of churches, the Assemblies of God, there could be a moving away from that truth and an infiltration of religion. We're, 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 not, we're not immune to it. It's the human condition. We always want to go back. You know, it's interesting in the Old Testament when... Uh, people wanted to hear from God, they went to the prophets. It's interesting that today, people tend, I mean, I be careful what I say here. People tend to go to a figure, a person, a, someone they see on TV preaching, and there's a lot of good preachers on TV. There's a lot of goofy ones too. They tend to hold up a person sometimes. Understand what I'm saying? They tend to even hold up their pastors sometimes. And I'm here to tell you, you go after God. Don't go to a person and expect them to spoon feed you. It doesn't work that way. They're there to encourage you, but it doesn't work that way where you can just get it all from one person. That's like going back to religion in a way, isn't it? We got to hear from God from the man of God. We can't hear from God on our own. The new covenant says you can. You can talk to Jesus anytime you want to. Get in his word. It's Jesus. Jesus is the word, right? The writer of Hebrews was saying the good news of Jesus... And the real relationship that you can have with him is far greater than any religiosity of the past. The new covenant is greater than the old one. And if there's one thing that you will come to understand about upon reading the Old Testament, it's that when man gets involved, it's disastrous. Their self-efforts always result in failure. Even the very last word of the Old Testament or Old Covenant alludes to this. Malachi 4.6 is the last verse of the Old Testament. And the last word in that verse is cursed. It's interesting. Cursed. The old covenant, to try and do it in yourself, in, in your own ability, it's a curse. Because we're human and we make mistakes. And I don't think this is by accident. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit directed the words in such a way to tell us that trying to live up to the standard of God through following systems and lists of rules or, or develop some kind of strong self-discipline to live holy through our, our, our own willpower 
will always end in being cursed. Ask an alcoholic who tries to stop being an alcoholic by, by his own will. Ask, ask somebody who, who's in other types, types of sin, whatever it might be. They try to stop out of their own willpower, and it just doesn't work, does it? We need Jesus Christ. We need that vital relationship with him. And in contrast to the last word of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant saying cursed or being cursed, the first word of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which was like rolling out the New Covenant, was the word blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Church, I don't want to sound like a broken record this morning, but if your relationship with Christ has been reduced to mere religiosity then, and, and that you continue to just let it hang on you so that those who do, who do have an active relationship with Christ won't see the truth about what's going on in your heart, you're not fooling anyone but yourself. This is what the book of Hebrews was talking about. This is what the writer was talking about. As soon as something difficult comes your way, maybe persecution like had come on these original audience uh, members uh, who the book of Hebrews was written to, or, or maybe it will be some other difficult thing that, that this world bombards us with. Your faith, if, if, you're, if, if, if you're not right there in right relationship with Jesus, your faith will slip and you'll fall. You'll fall flat in your face. You can't do it with religion. You can't do it with self-effort. You have to guard your relationship with Christ because if you don't, you will slip out of that relationship and fall into religion so quickly and you won't even know it. We have a tendency to just drift towards religion because we think we can control what we do, how we do it, blah, 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 if you just follow this, you know. We tend to go there. I understand what I'm saying this morning. And maybe you can keep up appearances for a while, follow the religious systems and such, but you will, have, you will not have that life-giving relationship that is essential to keeping your salvation intact. This short, to-the-point chapter that begins the book of Hebrews moves right into a warning in chapter 2. So we have an essay kind of thing convincing these, these believers and convincing us today that Jesus and his way in the new covenant is way better than the old covenant, way better than the prophets, way better than the angels, greater than the angels... And then he goes into a warning, like if he hasn't been kind of warning us enough because we're pretty good at reading between the lines, right? Hebrews 2, 1 through 5. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. I just want to make a point here. For those of you that believe once saved, always saved, why is the writer of Hebrews saying that believers could drift away from it? Just a thought. Verse 2, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, he's talking about the old covenant here, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. This new covenant, this great salvation, we can't neglect it. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, if, if the old covenant was, was good and if people were disobedient to it, they received punishment, how much more will we, we receive punishment if, as believers in the new covenant, neglect it? Because our new covenant is, is far greater than the old. We'll certainly receive punishment says we will not escape it. Relationship with Jesus is far superior to religion, church. It's greater than religion. If disobedience to the old covenant meant punishment, how will we escape punishment if we ignore so great a salvation? You know, you know we, can, we can read that verse and immediately think the writer is writing to those who would reject salvation and refuse to accept Christ, but he doesn't say reject here. He uses the word amelio, Amelio. It's a Greek word that's translated neglect. It means to be negligent with or make light of. And remember, he's writing to believers, not the unsaved. He's, he's writing to saved people. They've accepted Christ. 
And the warning is simple. If you make light of the new covenant, the relationship that you have experienced with Christ, if you neglect your salvation or are negligent with it, you certainly will not escape punishment. He's saying if God's people who lived according to the old covenant were punished for their disobedience, how much more will his people who have experienced his new covenant, a covenant that is much greater than the old, how much more will they be punished when they act in disobedience? I've said it 10 times now, haven't I? That's what he's saying. Relationship is not a mental assent. It's not living according to a list of rules. It's not doing things for Christ out of duty or obligation. It, it, it's being in love with him so much that you can't help but mentally assent to him. You can't help living holy because he is holy. Your innermost desires are to please him with your actions. When you're in a relationship, it all flows out of love and it makes all the difference in the world. It's night and day difference. Well, I think I'm going to start doing the church thing. I'm going to come to church and I'm going to start following the Ten Commandments and I'm going to start doing everything the church says I should do and that'll be pretty good, huh? Good luck. But when you walk into the church and you lay it all down, and you say, God, I give you my life, my heart. I want a relationship with you that's every single day, not just Sunday and Wednesday nights. I want every day to be a day that I spend with you in intimate relationship. When you have that kind of thing going on, everything else falls into place. Your holiness you can't be in a loving relationship with God and not desire holiness. But you can come to church and try to be holy and miss the mark every single time. How many know that that's true? Well, you might get lucky once in a while and do something good, but, but it's, the motive's wrong. My challenge for you this week is to, of course, read on in Hebrews. Read chapter 3 through chapter 4. Verse 13, read it over and over again. Let it sink down inside. Get, get your, I mean, meditate on it. Read your study notes and your study Bibles. But as you move on in this book, don't forget about relationship with Christ. Let your relationship with him permeate everything in your life. Let your relationship with him dictate how you start your day. How you act at work. How you act at school. How you interact with your family how and why you do everything that you do. Don't exchange your relationship with Christ for even a little bit of religiosity and know that that, that, that can be a very fine line sometimes. My challenge for you is to renew that relationship that you started when you first accepted him. You know, go back and remember the joy and the, and the peace and the, the weight that was lifted off of you when you first accepted him. Go back and re-experience your first love. Get that relationship thing right and everything else falls into place. It just does. It works. Try to do it in yourself. You're going to be frustrated the rest of your life. We serve Jesus Christ as Christians. The new covenant through him, through his shed blood, it's greater than anything that's ever been offered in the past. He offers relationship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thanks for joining us, us on our lives to send your only son to come into this world, to humble himself, to come into this world and, and live a sinless, perfect life and then spend three years ministering to his own creation, ultimately dying a substitutionary death, a, a death that he didn't deserve, but he died it, and, and he went ahead and, and let it happen to him on our behalf. Lord, I thank you that we were literally ransomed through that shed blood on the cross that he ransomed us, he paid the price so that we could one day have eternal life. God, I thank you today 
that we have access to your throne anytime we want. We can pray, we can worship, we can read your word, we can, we can be in your presence anytime we want. Lord, far be it from us to neglect so great a salvation, to make light of it, to be negligent with it. Today, God, I give you my heart once again. I choose you. I want to be in that active, loving relationship, God, with you where you're changing me from the inside out and I'm not trying to change from the outside in. Move me beyond religion into vital relationship. Move us all there, God. And if there's anybody in this room that your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, and maybe you need a rededication to the Lord. Maybe you need to just recommit to that relationship aspect of your faith. You've neglected it just a little bit. Or maybe you've never asked Jesus in your heart, ever. Would you just raise your hand and say, that's me, and I want, to, I want it to change right now. I want to make a decision today. Okay, see the hands going up? Several on the balcony. Relationship, not religiosity. Lord, we give you our hearts today. We ask you to be our Savior and Lord. Forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness, God. And we want to live for you. We put you on the throne of our life right now. We give you the reins. We give you the remote control. However you want to say it, Lord. We, we, we say it. We say you can be in control of us. I don't want the control anymore because I just keep messing it up. Come into my heart. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. I choose this day to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.